Will you open your Bible to John chapter 3, verse 16? Whatever just happened to the microphone, that was cool. Let's make sure it always stays that way. I sounded exactly like James Earl Jones. Or Morgan Freeman. John 3, 16. This is a text that will launch us into our final message in this retreat. And the title of this message, if you're into that sort of thing, is The Deep, Deep Love of Jesus. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. John 3, verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. But men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. This is the very word of the living God. May his spirit help us comprehend this deep, deep love. Henry Morehouse is a name you probably haven't heard of. He's not a particularly famous Christian dead guy. But he's been called the man who moved the man who moved the world. Christians of a former generation when they thought of the most well-known preacher and evangelist in the world, would quickly have named D.L. Moody as the most significant and influential used-of-God evangelist around the English-speaking world. D.L. Moody served as a pastor of a historic church in Chicago, and it was on his travels uh, in Great Britain that he met a young man who was Irish, and through a conversation that in Moody's description seemed to not exactly go the way he intended it to go, he invited him to come to Chicago and preach if he ever found himself in the United States. I'll give it to you in Moody's own words. He said it this way, in 1867, when I was preaching in Dublin at the close of a service of a young man who did not look over 17, though he was older, came up to me and said he would like to go back to America with me and preach the gospel. I thought he could not preach it, and I said I was undecided when I could go back. He asked me if I would write to him, as I did not know whether I wanted him or not. After I arrived at Chicago, I got a letter saying he had just arrived in New York and he would come and preach. Kind of an odd character, right? I wrote him a cold letter asking him to call on me if he ever came west. 
A few days later, I got a letter stating he would be in Chicago next Thursday. I didn't know what to do with him. I said to the officers of the church, there's a man coming from England and he wants to preach. I'm going to be absent Thursday and Friday. If you let him preach on those days, I'll be back on Saturday and take him off your hands. They did not care about his preaching, being a stranger, but at my request, they let him preach. On my return on Saturday, I was anxious to hear how the people liked him, and I asked my wife how that young Englishman got along. How did they like him? She said they like him very much. He preaches different from what you do. He tells people that God loves them. You see, Moody was a strict Calvinist, perhaps too strict. And his message up to that point in his ministry had been more about the judgment of God, the wrath of an almighty God. And so his wife noted this difference in their preaching. And she says, I think you'll like him. He goes on to say, I said he was wrong. I thought he could not like a man who preached contrary to what I was preaching. So I went down on Saturday night to hear him, but I had made up my mind not to like him because he preached differently from me. After graphically describing the six nights on John 3, 16, six nights in a row, this young man preached. It was sort of a revival meeting. And every single night, he preached the same text, John 3, 16. On the seventh night, in that seventh sermon, Moody was present, and he sat there, and this is what he said. In closing up that seventh sermon, he said, For seven nights, I've been trying to tell you how much God loves you. But this poor stammering tongue of mine will not let me. If I could ascend Jacob's ladder and ask Gabriel, who stands in the presence of the Almighty, to tell me how much love God the Father has for this poor lost world, all that Gabriel could say would be that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Moody said, I have never forgotten those nights I have preached a different gospel since and I have had more power with God and man since then in another place accounts that as he heard those words preached those most familiar words he couldn't stop the tears from flowing because he was overwhelmed with the reality that God loves this lost world our goal this weekend has been not to think about ways that we can improve our love for God. Not yet. Our goal this weekend has been to think deeply and carefully about God's love for us. Sinners, indeed. Deserving of God's judgment, but recipients of God's love. And as we've thought through the depth and height and breadth and length of the love of God, and as we've surveyed the Old Testament and seen that God truly is a God of love from the very beginning of creation, even into eternity beforehand and unto the end of all things and into the eternal state, God is best seen as a God of love. I thought it'd be best if we closed our time thinking about the deep, deep love of Jesus. Now, it makes sense that if God is love, 1 John 4, 8, in other words, if the core attribute of God is love, that's what that verse means, then Jesus will reveal 
God's love. Since Jesus came to reveal the Father, and that's one page back in your Bible in John chapter 1, when it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Because Jesus came as the one who will, verse 14, become flesh and make His dwelling among us, to see His glory, the glory of the one and only that came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Or verse 18 of chapter 1, no one has ever seen God, but God the no one has ever seen God, but God the one and only who is at the Father's side has made Him known. So if Jesus perfectly reveals the Father, then in the incarnation of Jesus, the coming of Jesus, in the teaching of Jesus, in the life and ministry of Jesus, in His interaction with people in this world, in His sacrificial life and death on the cross, in His resurrection, in His ascension to glory, in His ongoing ministry to us here uh, on earth and in our union with Him finally in heaven, we ought to see when we look at the life of Jesus, a life of perfect love. We should see the love of God exemplified in the Savior, and that's exactly what we see. The expression of God's love in Jesus is indeed love incarnate. The expression of God's love in Jesus shows us through Jesus' teaching and actions and death and ongoing ministry that God's love has been revealed perfectly when He took on flesh and established a relationship with His people in the new covenant that would forever display in a redeemed people the essence and power, potency, and beauty of the love of God in Christ. Let's just for a few minutes think through the sum of the incidences of, of Jesus' life and ministry that display the love of God in His perfect Son. It's hard to choose any incident in Jesus' life recorded in the four Gospels that doesn't display the love of God. But just to look at a few, let's start with the very concept of the incarnation. As we said in Exodus 34, and as I talked about a little bit on Saturday night, seven weeks ago, uh, seems like seven weeks ago, doesn't it? Retreats have the power of doing that. Exodus 34 was that self-revelation of God. It's where God says, I am who I am, and then showed himself to Moses. How much more so is the incarnation a self-revelation of God and His Son? That's why John in, in chapter 14 says this, I think, exactly in helping us understand how the incarnation is a display of the love of God. In, in chapter 14, verse 9, when he says, uh, Jesus says to Philip, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? In Jesus' expose, that, that He is indeed the Son of God, that He is truly God in human flesh, He reminds us that the ultimate and perfect revelation of God, as the book of Colossians says, or in Hebrews chapter 1, He is the 
radiance, the exact image of God, it is here for us in the person of Christ. If you've ever wanted to see the love of God lived out, just look to the stories of Christ's coming. The proof that God loves you, if you need proof one day, one dark and difficult day, when you just aren't convinced of the love of God, take the incarnation, the coming of Jesus as a human being to be all the evidence you'll ever need that God loves you. The Puritans used to talk a lot about assurance. They were firm believers in the sovereignty of God and salvation, and along with that kind of sovereignty of God and salvation comes a need, a biblical need to assess oneself, to make sure that you're truly converted, that you're a real Christian. And along with that kind of necessary soul-searching comes a, a need for assurance, to know for sure that you belong to God. And the, the Puritans talked about that a lot. One of them, Thomas Brooks, gives my favorite answer to a heart that's unsure of whether or not you are truly loved by God. He draws from the incarnation of Jesus and Jesus' final charge to his disciples when he told them to take the gospel to uh, all the nations and to beyond, to commission them, to send them uh, to every creature. And Thomas Brooks, in trying to help believers with their assurance, asks them this simple question. Are you among the rank of creatures? Well, are you? Are you a creature? Because I'm a creature. I don't know what else I am, but I'm a creature. God made me. And the fact that Jesus took on flesh and became like a creature, though He was not created, He was creature-like in His incarnation. And though He... and as he commissioned his disciples to tell the gospel to every creature, there's great assurance that we find in the incarnation of Jesus that God loves us because he sent his son to become a man. May this be ample evidence that God in his saving posture towards humanity cares enough about you, little old you, with all your various problems, with all your inadequacies, with all your insufficiencies. Know that you're among the rank of creatures and know it was Jesus who took on flesh and purposed to reveal God's glory in His coming. In His coming, He proved that God loves us and that He cares about us. So first, His incarnation is evidence of His love. Second, Jesus's, let's call it His compassion. His compassion. God's love in Jesus' compassionate life is a defining characteristic of everything that Jesus ever did. Open your Bible to any page in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and the fact stated in John 3.16 that God so loved the world that He sent His Son, we see Jesus acting as an emissary of heaven, an advocate of God's love, one who represented God's love perfectly in every action He ever took. 
Kosenberger says it this way, Jesus' actions consistently display his deep, compassionate care for the needy, his heart for the lost, his kindness, and his love for children. He grieves with those who grieve, encourages those who doubt, and makes provision for the care of his mother subsequent to his passing. What are the examples that come to mind of Jesus' kind and gentle ministry? You think of those words that mark the beginning of his ministry. Uh, a bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not crush out. And then he lived out that essayanic prophecy in his tender compassion, in his constant kindness. A leper comes to him begging to be cleansed begging to be healed, begging to be restored into society. And Jesus responds with compassion and heals him. Even when Jesus would withdraw to pray to an isolated place, throngs of people would come and they would bring the sick, Matthew 14. And Jesus never responded with frustration at these great crowds. Instead, He healed them, He taught them, He even met their material needs by feeding them. Repeatedly in the gospel, Jesus is so mindful and so kind and so loving that he actually cares enough about a mass of people, not to be inconvenienced by them, but to think about their needs before his own and say things like, do they have anything to eat? I mean, is that a remarkable kindness of our Lord? When they're hungry, he feeds them. You see it in passing moments in Jesus' life, seemingly incidental moments where Jesus encounters a funeral procession in Luke 7. And there's a widow mourning with the procession, the death of her only son. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Jesus knew to some degree what it was like to be an only son of his father. And he had mercy on this widow who lost her only son. She was his only family, her only means of support. And now he was cold and lifeless and about to be put into a tomb. And Jesus, because of his great compassion on the woman, raises her son to life and returns him to her. Jesus always about compassion. Jesus always caring about people. Strangers mattered to Jesus. Even people who were against Jesus were the recipients of His compassion. When Peter cut off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest in that moment in the garden where Jesus was going to be arrested and then beaten, flogged, and crucified. Jesus not concerned about His own safety, his own security, his own protection, instead picks up an ear off the ground and touches the man's face and restores that. This was a man who was coming to do Jesus harm. It's Jesus' same words on the cross as these soldiers and the religious leaders crucifying him. He, he hangs on the cross and what does he say? Father, forgive them. for They don't know what they do. Jesus didn't just tell us to love our enemies. He did so exactly. Jesus loves 
this lost and dying world. He showed this in the calling of his disciples, calling socially rejected and despised people like Levi, Matthew, the tax collector, pulling him out of his greedy, dirty, money laundering scheme and making him a friend of Jesus, dining with Matthew's friends, focusing his ministry not on the privileged, not on the elite, but on the disadvantaged, on the rejected, on sinners. Jesus was compassionate. As he said in Matthew 9, he looked at these crowds of people and he cared about them. Why did he exercise compassion? A a Greek word that means from the innards or from the guts. Jesus felt something for these people. Why, Matthew 9? Because they lacked a shepherd. He cared about them. Maybe my favorite story of Jesus' love since I was a child is that story of Zacchaeus. And it's because I'm of such short stature. I, I love the story of Zacchaeus. Just a tiny little guy. And he wanted to see the Lord, so he climbs up in a sycamore tree. You know the song. And Jesus meets him in his eagerness to see Jesus, this famous teacher and healer and rabbi. Jesus insists on having lunch with Zacchaeus and goes to his house, shocking all the good people in town. Zacchaeus turns from his sin and Jesus says, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is why Jesus would cry over Jerusalem and say, I want to gather you like a mother hen gathers her chicks. He would look at this vast city, the city that he had just said kills the prophets, and he would look at them with compassion, with tears in his eyes, weeping. One of the few places we see Jesus weep in the Gospels at the death of of his friend Lazarus. But here, overlooking a city that he was positive had done so much harm and so much rebellion against his father, he looks at them and he weeps because he came to seek and save the lost. The tenderness of Jesus displays the love of God when he tells a paralytic, my dear son, or I think it's, it's take heart, my dear son, your sins are forgiven. The tenderness of Jesus as he ministers to that little girl in uh, the book of John when he kneels down by her bed and she's just died and he says, Talitha, wake up. So gentle, so compassionate, so loving. He sees the woman with the who'd been suffering for years, bleeding and bleeding and bleeding. And he says, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Parents wanted Jesus to meet their kids. Everybody's proud of their kids. And they would bring him to Jesus and the disciples would try to shoo them away. Get away, kids. You don't want to give Jesus a snotty nose. But Jesus would shoo his disciples away. And he would gather up those children in his arms and he would play with them and speak tenderly to them and bless them and pray for them. 
in three different instances, the gospel writers record Jesus' kindness and love for children. Important disciples think children don't matter. Jesus knew they did, and that's how he acted. He cared for the doubting, whether it was John's disciples or whether it was his own disciples asking him uh, what was going to happen to him as things became more and more intense or whether it was Jesus comforting the doubts of Thomas even after his resurrection. Jesus was tender and loving towards those who doubted. The compassion of Jesus on display as he hangs on the cross and commits his mother's care to his disciple John. And just ordinary moments like that in the life of Jesus show us that he personified divine love in his compassion. Well, third, his sacrificial death. His sacrificial death. That's certainly the object of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave, he gave his one and only son. It wasn't just that Jesus left heaven's glories in the Father giving Him to us, but God gave Him up like a sacrifice for sin. Foreshadowed by all those lambs that had been killed in the Old Testament sacrificial system, now Jesus would be the Lamb of God, perfect, flawless, who lived a perfect life, set apart from sinners, but moving freely among them, touching them, healing them, teaching them, uh, telling them the kingdom of God was at hand, and then He, like an innocent lamb, would be slaughtered in our place. It was in His name, underscored Jesus, or Yeshua, meaning Yahweh saves. Salvation is of Yahweh, Yeshua. And as Jesus went to the cross, He did this knowing He was serving and loving His disciples to the fullest extent. He died for them. He willingly laid down His life, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. And when He spoke those words, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? He knew that He was undergoing the wrath of God so that we would not have to. You want to know if God loves you, friends? The existence of Jesus incarnate is proof enough. Further proof is there on the cross with Jesus hanging and dying and suffering. This is the truth that impacted D.L. Moody so greatly. This is why Jesus, before He died, taught that the summary of all the law was to love God and neighbor that true love would always manifest itself in obedience using that terminology of slave and master and saying, if you love me, keep my commandments. Jesus would teach on the love of God. This is another point here, number four. The teaching of Jesus shows the love of God. And you could go to almost any sermon of Jesus and see uh, or a prayer of Jesus like John 17 where He extols the Father's love for the Son, the Son's love for the Father, their love for each other being this Trinitarian, uh, beautiful, loving relationship that pours itself out onto love for the disciples, onto the beloved ones who will join His family. 
fifth, the ongoing ministry of Jesus is so important because Jesus rose from the grave and he promised us he goes to prepare a place for us. Jesus right now sits at God's right hand and he intercedes for us. Where is the Jesus who loves you now? Where is he now? Well, in one sense, he abides in you by his spirit. And in another sense, he is present at the right hand of God praying for you advocating for you he is actively at work demonstrating God's love for you in his ongoing ministry to you is that remarkable is that a breathtaking display of love that God of very God cares enough about you individually that he actually continues to pray for you continues to advocate for you continues to speak to the father on your behalf So how do we respond to the love of God we see in Jesus? How do we do it? We'll we'll talk about that in some the next couple Friday nights, but suffice it to say at this point that there is no one who has experienced the love of God who should not be able to meditate on the depth of that love. Samuel Trevor Francis was not a theologian. He sometimes taught in the Sunday school at his church, but he spent all his hours all week long selling stuff in London. He was a merchant. Late 1800s. When he would get home at night after working all day long, commerce, moving goods, selling stuff. It was the work of his whole life. He would write down some poems, some hymns, and his church began to sing them. He sold stuff, you guys. He was a merchant. So whether you're going to be a salesman or a doctor or a nurse or a computer person, or whatever it is you're going to do with your life, can you use your waking hours to remind yourself and remind a dying world of the depth of the love of Jesus? That's what Samuel Trevor Francis did. Just an ordinary merchant. Listen to the words that he wrote. He wrote this. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Vast, unmeasured, boundless, free. Rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me is the current of thy love. Leading onward, leading homeward to thy glorious rest above. The merchant would dip his pen and write this. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Spread his praise from shore to shore. How he loveth, ever loveth, changes never, never more. How he watches o'er his loved ones died to call them all his own. How for them he intercedeth, watcheth over them from the throne. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Love of every, love the best. Tis an ocean vast of blessing. Tis a haven sweet of rest. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Tis a 
heaven of heavens to me, and it lifts me up to glory, for it lifts me up to thee. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. This is how we experience the love of God. This is how we know its depth.